Thank you, gentlemen. We now just continue that heart of worship into the Word. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. You will find the book of Nahum. It is basically right in the middle of the Minor Prophets, right between Micah and Habakkuk. The book of Nahum. That will be our home for this morning. And in that, as we turn there, we're reminded that these two weeks we continue our look this morning at God's people and ungodliness, God's people and ungodliness, meaning specifically the question, how do God's people live amid ungodliness? Last week, of course, we looked at one way, and that is in unity. How do we sustain in ungodliness? We live in unity. We live together. We live in the body of Christ, not apart from it. We live of like mind. This week, we consider another way in which God sustains us in such times of ungodliness, and it is with this consideration, victory, victory, yes, victory, justice, coming justice, in fact. Biblically, it is accurate to use a word, as you've already seen this morning, vengeance, like vengeance. Indeed, the Bible says in many places, vengeance is coming. I want us to consider again a text we heard from this morning, a New Testament text that speaks of this. Listen again to just a bit of 2 Thessalonians 1. Let me read a few verses. Verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, this is to the church, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You hear that Jesus is returning, mark it, and he is returning, note the manner, in flaming fire, and purpose for what? His return to inflict vengeance, the text says, on the disobedient, on the evil. Now, we need to be clear this morning as we repeat that. It's not a nice thought, is it? And I have no doubt there's some of you, as we've had, of course, many references to that in song, in reading, in prayer, maybe feeling very uncomfortable with all the vengeance. No doubt. We are at a point in humanity where we just have no tolerance for that, specifically when it is said by a higher power. It's not popular. It certainly doesn't make you warm and fuzzy. And it is not for some what you want to consider in these times. In fact, I would submit to you this is part of the issue, is a running and a laying down of truth and consequence at the expense of not feeling unpleasant about truth. But here is the problem, beloved. As you've seen sung, prayed, read, and now studied. This is true. The Word of God, is this not true, Westmount, cannot be clearer about this fact. And this truth of Jesus returning in vengeance, listen, here it is, 
is given to the church at Thessalonica, in context of what we read, for their comfort. In fact, I want you to listen to verse 5 again. Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. You come off the table and that right reminder that we're not worthy. In Christ, we're found worthy. In Christ is our shelter against what is coming. In fact, Paul will go on to say this is to bring relief. Verse 7, to grant relief. This truth is to grant relief. Are you looking for relief this morning? Relief that is coming justice, coming victory, given to you saints for hope. In that first century, the saints lived in ungodliness, suffering persecution abounded. The treatment, and you know this, many of you do, by the governing authorities in the first century, Nero and others, is well documented. We need no history lesson for how Christians were treated in that first century. And to also be clear today, and I need to say this, we're not suffering like that today. We're not suffering like that today. Yet. Yet. But the church, the head and the body and the Word of God are unquestionably under attack. There can be no arguing against that. Is that not true? Everything flowing from God is under attack. And the assaults are godless and unjust. Precious saints, the evidence is just overwhelming. We'll get to this weekend in a moment. Let's just take a sample and put it under a microscope. Let's do what you want to do when you want to study something. Just take a sample, take a slice, and let's put it under the microscope, a specimen. This could be June 2022. It could be the year 2022. It could be the past decade. And what do we see as we look down? Social injustice demanded. Sexual immorality paraded. Black umbrellas on Friday. Black umbrellas with pride holding up murder, masquerading as choice. We see lawless, deceptive authority. We see overreach embraced. We see overreach made virtuous. This continues to shock. Yes, it does, but beloved Christian, listen, it shouldn't surprise. It shocks you but it shouldn't surprise. Is that not true? Listen, what is left? Consider with me for a moment as we begin. What is left when the human driving force of the nations is ungodliness? What's left? There is nothing left when you deny creation and indoctrinate evolution. There's nothing left when you fund and give access to womb slaughter and then make it policy and practice for doctors to aid people in taking their own life. You tell them you must help them commit suicide. That's virtuous. There's nothing left when you tear down the nuclear family and make the modern family, whatever that is, a virtue. Two dads or two moms, just take your pick. Just don't make it natural. 
There's nothing left when you give boys dolls and you give girls trucks or you wait to let them decide. Imagine with me, beloved, empowering children to disobey God's design. There's nothing left when you legislate God's design as a myth. When you take the transcendent law and you say it's a stereotype. There's nothing left when you protect, note it, protect and enshrine truth suppression and the godless rebel. There's nothing left. Beloved, we can agree on this. There is nothing left when God is systematically removed, note it, from everything. There's nothing left. Let us be clear that all that is ungodly is paraded today. And with that, in concert, his people and his word are under fire. How are the godly, how are the saints to live amid such ungodliness? How are the ungodly, or how are the godly, I'm sorry, the holy ones, the brothers and sisters, to live in such an age as this? They consider unity, as we have noted. They also consider, again, our look this morning at victory. Victory, that is ultimate victory, yes. Ultimate victory, and why do we say that? Because there's loss here. Isn't there tremendous loss right now? In fact, you cannot be a Christian and not feel how much you're losing right now. Is that not true? Friday notwithstanding. There's loss here, but listen, as we gloriously just sung, this is not the end. We know what's coming. Now, before we turn to look at victory... We need to consider, first, God's response to the ungodly. We need to systematically treat this this morning. First of all, with all the ungodliness, what does God have to say about this? I want you to just hear Isaiah 5. This sets the table for us this morning. What does God say in the face of ungodliness? Now, listen, this is with His people. This is a pronouncement against His own people in Isaiah 5. Listen to this, Isaiah 5, 20 to 23. And tell me if this is applicable today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. God declares in such cases such backwards morality. When what is good is called evil and what is evil is called good, God declares woe, which is both decree and lament in God's Word. Woe is both decree and lament. We will see woe as lament later on. We'll come back to that. But to begin this morning, we need to peek in at woe decreed. Woe that looks at something and makes a declaration. God here pronounces woe. One dimension of woe, in fact, is found here in Isaiah 5 that looks and makes a statement about ungodliness. And the statement is this, declare something must be done about this ungodliness. Listen to this then, verse 24, if we were to keep reading, therefore, in other words, in light of what has just been said, this, 
As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. And why? Here it is. Here it is. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Cannot be clearer as we will continue to see in God's Word. So woe here is a decree that says a reckoning is coming because of ungodliness, in light of ungodliness, a reckoning is coming. Woe sees the injustice and declares justice is coming. Sees the injustice, declares justice coming. And this is key. Woe has another, of course, backwards dimension. We're going to see that in Nahum later. But we want to make sure we're clear on this decree and declaration that woe brings. Woe is familiar, of course, if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, heading to the cross, remember, pronounced woe repeatedly. Matthew 11, to unrepentant cities. Matthew 18, to the evil enablers in the world. Matthew 23, to the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. Woe, woe, woe. In other words, the declaration of Jesus to the evil abounding was condemnation. And it was this, a time of reconciliation was coming. That was Jesus' point. You're not right now with this behavior, and be warned. Of course, Jesus was headed to the cross, and post-cross, Colossians 2.15 says this, He, Jesus... What did he do with the cross? Disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We could literally render that in it, the cross, the cross, the instrument of disabling by the Christ. Beloved, that's the biblical declaration of victory, justice upheld and coming. The victory of the cross, evil defeated ultimately, but still lingering. And we need to note that this morning. Praise God that evil is disarmed. And it has no grip on the Christian for eternity. Praise God. But it still lingers. Evil is disarmed, but it's still at work. Victory is secured, but not fully realized or fully consummated. That victory that the first coming secured will be fully realized at His second coming. Thus, the vision of the cross, evil defeated, and a day of consummate justice is ahead. Westmount, how do you sustain an ungodliness? You keep your eye on that victory that is coming. You keep your eyes on that day. On that day. That is how we live in ungodliness in this day, these weeks, these months, until He comes again. To help us do so, we will reach even further back, not just our age or the first century, to ungodliness past. We say so often, there's nothing new under the sun with the ungodly. Is that not true? Ungodliness past, a time of ungodliness that God's people lived in back in the 7th century B.C. That's where we're going today. Under the ungodly reign of Assyria, that ancient foe of God's people, Assyria's threatening, attacking, invading presence was a constant context for Israel, a constant reality for Israel. As they were surrounded 
by nations. There was the bully nation of this time, Assyria. True bully, in fact. For a span of about 200 years or so, they ruled the ancient schoolyard. They had their way and they did as they pleased. And they were ungodly. The Assyrians were wicked. In fact, it is documented that their wickedness knew no bounds. Spare so many of the details, but needless to say, they enjoyed using captives as torches. And the graphic records of what they did with the blood and the skin of captives. We need not go there, but just know they were wicked. The Assyrians were the ones that invaded, by the way, and obliterated under God's sovereign hand the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Ungodly attack, yes, but under godly sovereign direction. By the way, this is foretold by Amos. In the letter of Amos, it's a little earlier on from Nahum. That little shepherd in the south foretold that this was coming to those in the north. Well, in 701 B.C., they threaten again. This is Assyria. After obliterating the north in 701 B.C., they threaten again. And this time, they threaten the southern kingdom, which is, of course, Judah. Sennacherib invades Judah. That is the king of Assyria at the time. He invades Judah. And his Rabshakeh defies God. I think you know this account. You can turn with me to it. Second Kings. This is the backdrop, most likely, to what we're reading in Nahum. Sennacherib invades Rabshakeh like a military uh, ambassador, mouthpiece for sure, as we'll see. He says this, comes in boldly, one of the fronts, and he has this to say. Let's pick it up, 2 Kings 19, verses 10 and 11. This is the Rabshakeh returning. He's now before Israel. He says this, verse 9, Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he is set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah. So this is through the Rabshakeh. This is the message saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So in other words, king of Assyria has a message for king of Judah. And it's this. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That's bold. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? You see this bully here? Don't let your God deceive you. Have you not heard of me and Assyria? We make nothing the nations. We make them nothing. And it sounds very much like the taunts that you hear today, does it not? Beloved, maybe you've heard this. In the workplace, at the relative table, in the streets. Don't let your God deceive you. What are you doing? Clinging to such righteousness. Don't let your God deceive you. These taunts, right, are timeless as long as evil is here. Don't let your God deceive you. Such is the reality today and such. This is the history and the taunt we enter into today. And into this ungodliness, this ungodly boast, here it is, God speaks. And His message is twofold. Back to Nahum. His message is twofold. It is a message of judgment for evil, as we'll see, and comfort for God's people. Judgment for Assyria. Comfort for His people, Israel. 
Yes, judgment, as we'll see, concerning Assyria. In fact, just look at the opening verse. An oracle concerning Nineveh. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh would have been the pillar city of Assyria. So we are introduced here to this letter, this oracle, which simply means a word, a divine word for or concerning Nineveh. But in one sense, this letter is to Israel so that they would know what God and His plans are for Assyria, for Assyria. And comfort, so there's the judgment concerning Assyria, but comfort through this prophet Nahum. Nahum means comfort or compassion. Isn't it interesting? This is the prophet raised up to bring this message. Comfort, compassion for God's people because vengeance, victory is coming. One can imagine this prophecy coming right at that time. Again, we can't locate it with that specificity, but we know it's in that ballpark as the Rabshakeh on behalf of the king of Assyria taunts. This letter would come. Let's be introduced then to this book in the opening verses. Look with me at the first six verses. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. The Lord, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Father, we pray that you would take these words that you gave, these ancient words, These words, Lord, that still have so much import today, and God, that you would open our eyes to them. May we receive them, whatever the stead is of all those gathered here today, that we receive and we apply them to our soul condition by your grace. Father, may we recognize who you are. You are indeed a God of judgment and a God who saves. Lord, let us see that by your grace, we pray. Amen. Indeed, vengeance and comfort. A God who is both judge and Savior. We will see that. That is the message and the purpose of this book, Nahum. So let's look close. We'll observe today three reasons why victory is sure. Three reasons why victory is sure. Hence, they're worth our consideration this morning in this day. Number one, it's this. God is judge. God is judge. The basis of this prophecy in Nahum is rooted in what we just read in verses 1 to 6. That's the anchor of this prophecy. The very character of God. Did you catch it? The very character of God. Victory is given here, is rooted in who God is. These opening verses are unequaled in portraying the God of perfect justice. Assyria, quake. Israel, be comforted. How? Why? Because of what is given here. And let's look at what's given here. One, God is jealous. That means violations to His love will not be tolerated. 
right? This is zealous protection, same root. That is God, divine passion unleashed against any threat to His own. Our God is a jealous God. Secondly, our God is an avenging God, verse 2. He takes vengeance and keeps wrath for His enemies. This goes hand in hand, His jealousy. And see at Westmount, God does not sit idly by as ungodliness is flexed. You know, that may not be trumpeted from the rooftops today, but don't we function in that sometimes? This low-grade fever that God understands and that we just let the evil go by. But God does not. That's not God. He is not idle with evil. Listen, He is, as we'll see in a moment, slow to anger. His patience is perfect. But a time comes where He will avenge because God is perfect justice. God is judge. God is jealous in His vengeance and great and powerful, great in power, or we would say all-powerful. Look at what's next in verse 3. God is omnipotent. And with that omnipotence, what an amazing couplet here. The Lord is slow to anger and, could almost say, yet great in power. So on one, we know omnipotence is not just all power, but what have we learned here at Westmount over the past year? That omnipotence is perfect power. Not just all power, it's perfect power. Perfect power set against what here in this verse? A Lord, a God who is slow to anger. What a picture. The ability and character to wield perfect power against the ungodly, but the perfect patience to be slow to anger against it. What kind of God is this? What's the God we saw in Exodus, is it not? Slow to anger with such hardness of heart, yet the plagues would come. The Passover as well. This the power, this patience and power, almost here presented, whether in Exodus or here in Nahum, like two sides of a coin, patience and power, this is the same power to create the heavens and the earth. Thus, the power to rebuke the sea and make it dry. Look at verse 4. And the power, verse 5, to make the mountains quake. Now listen, this is not just an Old Testament message of patience and power. This is a New Testament manifestation. And that patience and power together was manifested in who? Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ. Oh, how He bared with the unbelief of His people. He bared and He bared with it. But yet He was perfect in power. Just take Luke 8. It's one example. You see Him with His all power over the sea. His omnipotence over the spiritual realm, over the demons. His power over disease. The hemorrhaging woman. And of course, Jairus' daughter lies dead. His omnipotence to raise the dead. That's perfect power. And speaking of Christ, we consider not only who He is, But what He does, He, God, with perfect power to make wrongs right, to bring justice to injustice. The perfect power, of course, we can talk about the cross, which we have been and will continue to, a perfect power to make the greatest injustice the greatest justice. And we see here, as we think of this context, because 
only one perfect in power in this scenario, like it was true at the cross, how much more true here, only one perfect in power can assure perfect justice. God is jealous. God is vengeance. God is all-powerful. All of that then leads to this. Look at the rhetorical questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Remember, rhetorical questions are questions where the answer is obvious. There's no refutation. No one can. No one. Not even the ungodly. They may stand now. And there's your picture. The question is asked, who can stand? Because it may seem like the ungodly are standing. But the question is, for the God-fearer, who can ultimately stand against Yahweh? No one can. They may stand now, but they will not continue to. See it. His wrath is poured out like fire. Look at it. And the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. That's perfect wrath coming from perfect power by way of perfect justice. That's God's character. And that's where victory is rooted. This is your peace, Westmount. Victory is rooted in who God is. God is judge. That's one reason why victory is assured. Now another two. God is judge. God is Savior. God is Savior. We continue in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Here in this verse, we encounter another attribute, another perfection of God. The Lord is good. Last week, we commented on the word good and its godly source and origin. And flowing out of His goodness is this assurance that He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. See it. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. What a peace that is, is it not? He knows the ones that flee to Him for refuge. Amazing. In fact, Martin Luther said of that picture that He knows those who run to Him, genuinely, sincerely. Martin Luther once said this, that truth right there is overflowing with consolation. And is it not? It means He knows what resides in your heart, that you want to run to Him for refuge. The Lord is good. Yes, He is jealous. He will bring vengeance. He will bring wrath. But with that in concert, He is good. God's justice is good. God's power is good. The Lord is good. And here, the picture of God's goodness is this. He is a stronghold. That's like a fortress, a mighty refuge in the day of trouble. To His own, to those that run to Him, To those genuinely fearing Yahweh and looking to live for Him, He is a stronghold like He was for the Israelites that genuinely believed against the prevailing wickedness of Assyria. Yes, there were some. It may not seem like there were some in ancient Israel, but there were some. There's always the remnant that believed. And He is a stronghold also centuries later to us, church, For you, for me, for us, in these days of evil, this principle stands. In these troubled days, when the authorities oppress and attack the godly, mark it, this consolation, God protects us, God preserves us, and God plucks us from this evil. Listen, God saves. Yes, God is Savior. The raw materials of His rescuing character are found right here. How is God a God of saving? How does God save His own? Well, here we see that first, at least in this context, what He's doing is He's dealing with His enemies. Look at verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries. 
and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Look at that. Who is the one that plotted against the Lord? Well, we've seen it already, who this worthless counselor is. Remember that Assyrian king, Sennacherib. It's widely understood that the worthless counselor is him. And here is the declaration from the Lord with regards to Sennacherib in Assyria in verse 12. Look at this as we continue. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and remember, Assyria at this time would have been at full strength, and many, though that's true, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from off you, as he turns to Israel, and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Here, back to Assyria. From the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Wow. God states, look at it, even in Assyria's full strength, they will be cut down and pass away. And then this promise, look at verse 14. Note this. This is the commandment given, it says, about Assyria, no more shall your name be perpetuated. What a mighty name they were. From the house of your gods, note the prophecy, from the house, location of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now, that is an interesting prophecy. So, what of it? We'll turn back to 2 Kings 19. Turn back to 2 Kings 19. God says, remember, from the house of your gods, I will cut you off and make your grave. If we were to continue reading the account we started earlier, you remember how it started in chapter 19 with the taunt in verse 10? Let's fast forward to the end of the account. That very night, in fact, Sennacherib returns home, departs. He's in Nineveh, pick it up in verse 37, and as he was where? Worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, at Ramelech, and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Arshadon, his son, reigned in his place. Simply precise, exact prophecy. Again, Westmount, as we look at the weeks and months ahead, living in ungodliness, we consider this. This is comfort. As God says, so it will be, and he will deal with evil. This is the comfort, and we've seen it again and again, right? In Exodus and Ephesians 1 and all, as God said, so it comes to be. God denounces the ungodly, and God does away with the ungodly. Be sure of it. God is Savior, and one way He saves His people is by cutting off the enemy. That is good news. And if there was any doubt, by the way, God adds this to the end of chapter 1. If there was ever a doubt, back to Nahum, God always gives us more. Look at the last verse in chapter 1. He says this, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again, note the wording, shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. In other words, he's just done something with the worthless counselor. 
And hence, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. God has dealt with enemies. This is good news, Israel. This declaration, by the way, that language is found in Nahum's contemporary, meaning someone who ministered at the same time as Nahum, the prophet Isaiah. In the 52nd chapter, 7th verse, very similar language. And by the way, in a similar context of future salvation for Israel. Same language used, though the one publishing piece bringing good news, his feet are beautiful. And not only there, back in Isaiah, but forward, forward in the church age, the book of Romans 10, Paul uses this exact same reference as he talks about the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And how beautiful it is, whether it's Paul or others, the feet of those who bring and herald this good news. All of that just simply says, from Isaiah to Nahum to Romans, to illustrate how good this news is, God as Savior. Here to Israel and Nahum, peace is published. And what's the publication? God is Savior. Still the publication today. There is no deviation from that publication. God and God alone saves. There is no other Savior. God continues now with how He will save. And what is next is the specific description. In the final two chapters, let's consider them all as a whole. And our final reason for assurance, God is conqueror. God is judge. God is Savior. God is conqueror. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The scatterer has come up against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, the chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end to the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Quite a graphic description of what God will do in this case and did do to Assyria. We looked earlier at the outcome for Sennacherib. Remember, as God said, killed in the house of his gods. But what of Assyria the nation? What about the nation Assyria? Would another ruler just taunt? Do you just need another Sennacherib? You know, another good order, another one quick and witty with the bold taunts? Would another just rise to taunt Israel and on it goes? That's a warranted question. Well, history reveals that in 612 BC, the Assyrians fell. 
Yes, well before that day, at the height of Assyria's power. Remember, here in Nahum, they're at the height of their power. But a time was coming where they would fall decades later. And Assyria's fall here, foretold by God, is declared. And that fall, foretold here, is absolutely a majestic description of the omniscience, of the power, of the everything of our God over history and time. Let us consider the details as we look at this chapter. Who are these? Look at them. Verse 3, the scarlet-clad brandished invaders, they are the Babylonians. You history buffs know they were the ones to rise after Assyria, the rising power to the east. They were just small, little, random tribes at the time in what would be modern-day Iraq. They really were nothing at the time. Little scattered tribes of Babylonians, hardly a blip And to predict that such a small, rogue bunch of little tribes would rise to power is one thing which Babylon did do, and they would become a force. But to accurately predict the color of their soldiers, the design of their chariots would be something else entirely different. The Babylonians wore red, and by the way, on their chariots were metal spikes, just as it says. We talked about this Wednesday night, or we have been at least... Some would say, well, that's just too accurate to be true. Yet, not just accurate, but precisely accurate. And still there's more foretold. Look at this, verse 5, a siege tower set up. Nineveh was famed for erecting siege towers. History records some 1,200 of them. Look more, the river gates are opened. The palace melts away, verse 6. And with that, what? Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Lots and lots of water. Don't miss it. That's important. I want you to consider that picture along with what we read back in chapter 1. Remember, God will make their end with an overflowing flood. That's your picture. And so it was. Nineveh, that capital of Assyria, fell in 612 B.C. at the hand of the Babylonians. But more, in 612 B.C., it was an uncharacteristically rainy season. This is what history tells us. So much so that the walls eroded around Nineveh, the city towers and defenses crumbled and fell. Again, many historians confirm this. At which point, the Babylonians, when the walls and defenses fell, the Babylonians stormed the city, and look at it, put an end to Assyria. Even more, that description, look at verse 8 and 9, is precisely what extra-biblical sources tell us. After the waters flooded through, listen, the Assyrians are running amok. You can get the picture, right? Their walls are coming down, and the Babylonian looters came in. They plundered, verse 9, the silver and the gold, just as it says. And what is most especially interesting here is this. This is, this looting, this plundering, is the very thing that Assyria did to who? The northern kingdom. Turned right on their head. As done, in other words, so now Assyria done to you. As we consider 180s, as you consider Assyria's relationship to God, you need to consider this in verse 13. Look at it. Behold, God says, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Look at it. Behold, I am against you. You know, it's something to hear that horizontally from another human, right? You know that feeling in your stomach when someone says, I'm against you. I'm not with you anymore. But what of those words from God Almighty? 
What if God says to you, behold, I'm against you? This judge says, I'm against you. In fact, he says it two times. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. He says it again so that Assyria would know. You've done this to my people. I'm a jealous God, a vengeful God, and now I'm against you. The final verse of chapter 2 captures the essence of God's vengeance. Look at it. The chariots up in smoke, the young lions. By the way, you see the lion imagery there in chapter 2? That was the symbol for Assyria. Now gone. Cries not even heard. You see that? What is left in the wake of such judgment, such precise, devastating prophecy? Only woe. We've commented on the fourth telling of woe from Isaiah and Jesus, but what of woe here that looks back? That's the declaration as the smoke is rising after destruction. Woe is decree, yes, but it's also lament. It's the tragic irony of the mighty have fallen. Consider the woe that introduces the chapter and then the scene surveyed. Chapter 3, listen to the woe. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. What a picture. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. And here it is again. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the military God. And will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, and note this, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? The bloody city, verse 1, heaps of corpses, the stumbling dead bodies without end, verse 3, vivid picture upon vivid picture, and this time they culminate in what? The grand picture of conquer, conquer. This is destruction. This is enemies put down. And this is not just a gratuitous, excessive scene. This is so that everyone knows who reads this text that God is victor. Victory is God's. Let there be no misunderstanding. Just as he said he would, he conquers against those that were against him. Remember, this retribution is for those that set themselves against God, so it is just. And to underline the gravity of what it means to be against God, let's consider this again in verse 7. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? I want you to consider that scene. All shrink away. There's no one mourning. There's no one grieving. God declares to the Ninevites that not only will you be destroyed, Nineveh, but here it is. Look at it. No one is going to care. Do you see that? That's woe. And that is the end of God's enemies who think they're proud and have their taunts. No one will care. This scene brings me back to years ago. I remember I was at a funeral for someone who had many enemies. And I went. I went. They really hadn't done anything to me. But they were known for being against other people. And I think I'm going to exaggerate here to say there were maybe 12 people in the room. Nobody cared. 
That's the picture. Nobody cares. That's the destruction that God brings against His enemies. No one will care. That is woe. And that's the end of God's enemies. And here, Westmount, note the sovereignty of God in this victory as we pick ourselves up. Verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, Assyria, that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, put in the Libyans were her helpers. Thebes is a reference to Egypt. Egypt would have been the ones before Assyria, the mighty Egyptians. Again, we know them very well from Exodus. And they were mighty, but they fell. And just as they were powerful, Thebes and Egypt, Assyria, you too, will fall. Verse 9, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. doesn't matter how powerful. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces. At the head of every street, for her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With the first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the seed. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Credible truths here about this humiliation. The indictments are so stinging. Do you see it? Women, children, this is humiliation. And to cap it all off as we finish, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. In other words, they're nothing. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Those who hear the news about you do what? They clap their hands. Wow, it has come full circle for Assyria, a long way from those taunts in Judah. I want you to consider the fate of the Assyrians, those brutal, one-time, anti-God Assyrians. God here has conquered. As He said, so it was. They are done. God has judged. God gives victory. This God is victorious and Let us not forget that amid the ungodliness, out of the conquering has come also salvation. God is judge and God is Savior. And Westmount, in every sense, listen, please. This is your endurance in these times. This is a tough book with tough truths, but they're true. They're given for our comfort in these times. God will judge. It is coming. Consider again those Assyrian taunts and what happened back in 2 Kings 19. And how did that end for Assyria? That enemy of God, that ungodliness. Westmount, meditate on what is coming. Not the details, 
Not even the vengeance, but the victory. The victory. The perfect justice. Certainly not felt now, but is coming. Christ is coming back to conquer and to reign. Indeed, Jesus shall reign. But Westmount Faithful, your endurance in the weeks and the months that are ahead of us now is much more than a broad sense of victory. And I just leave you with this final reflection before a break. Your endurance over the summer and in the weeks and months to come must be greater than a broad sense of victory as you open God's word. It must be. Please don't leave it there. Victory must be for each one of you deeply personal. Right? It has to be. It's one thing to consider history and what happens to evil and what happens to nations. That's one thing, and there's a place for that as we've studied today. But this is personal, saints. How do we sustain in this present ungodliness while we stop and consider how God is conqueror, judge, and savior where? In our own lives, right? In our own lives. He took you, did he not? When you were an Assyrian, do you remember that? He took you. And remember when you were actively working against him? Do you remember that? I do. He dealt with the enemy, your sin, by bearing it on the cross. He became it, 2 Corinthians 5. Then he dealt that enemy a fatal blow by laying his righteous life down in place of yours, Christian. Nailed to the cross, then laid in the tomb. Then the victory, you recall it, on the third day, when the tomb was found empty, that picture of victory, enemy conquered, victory won, hope secured by God the Savior. Beloved, the future ultimate victory was won on the cross, but the warfare continues. It'll continue this summer, it'll continue this year and for the years to come until the conqueror, the victor, returns. But because of the truth of our conquering king who is coming, we can endure every battle, can we not? We can, knowing the victory is secured and ahead. So how will you, in fact, I should ask, will you meditate on these truths in the weeks ahead? Christ is the victory. Christ is the victory over unlawful authority. Hear me, Christ is the victory. Christ is the victory over relentless temptation. I understand how it feels. Christ is the victory, brother. Christ is the victory, sister. What about lingering illness? You just can't get 100%. Christ is the victory over your illness. Christ is the victory. What about those dark clouds of despair? They just won't let you go, will they? Christ is the victory. What about the deceptive headlines? I know you've been affected by that. Christ is the victory. Your marriage, not what you thought it would be. Oh, the strife and the struggle. Listen to me. Christ is the victory. The difficult work environment you're in, brother, sister, I understand it. Christ is the victory in that work environment. You have grief, you have sorrow, you have loss. Christ is the victory. 
And what about the widespread immorality? I'm quite sure if you're genuinely born again in this room, you have been bothered to a point you can't stand anymore. Immorality is everywhere. Listen to me. Christ is the victory. And the rampant injustice, when you walk out those doors, when you go to Monday and the rest of your week, you listen to me, Christ is the victory. You don't let that go. No matter what happens to you and assails you in the weeks ahead, Christ is the victory. Can you remember that? Christ is the victory. And listen, He's over all that is evil. He's sovereignly victorious. Remember that in the days ahead. Because one day, coming soon, not soon enough, right, for for some of you I know, and for really all of us, all the nations that persecute the godly now, one day, the Word of God says this, this is what will happen one day. This call will go out to those that are persecuting the nations. Listen, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord God's people. What does it say? Praise the Lord all nations. All nations wanting to praise the Lord. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love. It will remain in the weeks ahead. Toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Father, we consider such great truths, Lord, that the victory is not only in your Son, but the victory is coming and won in Him. And when we are found in Him, Lord, we too have victory over all of these things because we are in Christ. Oh, Lord, let us never forget that as we march ahead, looking to be obedient to you as you are faithful to us. In Christ's name we pray.